Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. Hey, Jane. So we spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about ancient civilizations and societies of the past and wars and medieval torture devices and Thomas Jefferson. But something we don't get around to as often is very important women in history. And we actually had a listener email us and she wrote, first off, I'd like to say I love your podcast. Thank you very much. Anyway, I would like to hear about some more famous women in history. I have a couple of ideas, but someone who really sticks out to me that would be fun is Joan of Arc. She's always so shrouded in mystery, and I would really love to hear your take on it. If you had to do one, I would definitely suggest her. And that came from Tashika. And she also said she wanted to hear about Annie Oakley, Jane Addams, Sojourner Truth, and a couple of other very exciting women. And not only are we going to cover Joan of Arc, but just to give you guys a little sneak peek of what's coming up down the line, we're going to be talking about women in ancient Egypt and Betsy Ross. And a few other surprises. So Yeah, and Joan of Arc has got to be one of the most popular, I think. I think maybe I remember another uh, fan asking for her as well, but, you know, always a popular choice. To give you some context, she lived from 1412 to 1431. And if you haven't noticed, that's a pretty short amount of time. She didn't live very long. Uh, if you don't want to do the math real quick, that means she was only about 19 when she died. And she that's when she was put to death for heresy. Yeah, but that's the end of a very long and complicated life story. So I think to get everyone started, we'll sort of set up what's brewing over in Europe and more specifically in France and England, because Joan was known for leading the Siege of Orleans, which occurred in 1429. But as you may remember from one of our earlier podcasts, the Inquisition started raging much earlier than that. And in 1231, uh, they started trying to phase out heretics from the Catholic Church. And as events transpired, we had the Hundred Years' War start up. And that's where things got really sticky with the church and then with France and England fighting for the throne. And I'm going to let Jane give you guys some background on that. So the Hundred Years' War was actually a little bit longer. I think it was 116 years that it lasted. And we lump it together, call it the Hundred Years' War. But it was really a series of conflicts, as you might guess. Uh, it was treaties and broken treaties that lasted for this period uh, between about 1337 and 1453, between France and England. And it's a really sticky issue. It's really complicated. But it goes back to actually 1066 when William, who was the Duke of Normandy at the time, defeated the King of England and took over England. So that meant that the King of England held territory in France. And by the 14th century, those territories, those French territories, were still in dispute. And things had gotten even stickier, too, Jane, because people had been intermarrying between France and England. And so when you talk about uh, lineage and the heir to certain seats, it's really complicated. Yeah, in 1309, the King of England's son married the daughter of the King of France, and the result of that marriage was Edward III, I believe, and so he had a claim to the French throne in 1328, which happened to be the year that the French uh, King Charles IV died without a clear heir. So as you can see, it was just a huge mess. And uh, fast forward to about 1415, uh, you have English King Henry V. And if you've ever read that Shakespeare, one of the best Shakespeare uh, plays, I think, you know a little bit about the Battle of Arancourt, etc., and how he was very victorious. And eventually, 
He invaded France and got them to sign the Treaty of Troyes, which agreed that Henry would get to the、uh, French throne after the sitting king Charles VI died. So it seemed like a fair compromise, but it was made void when both of them died. Yeah, they both died in 1422. Henry died first, and Charles died a few、uh, weeks afterwards. So this complicated the question of who would get the French throne. Basically, you have the issue of the French people didn't like; they didn't support the Treaty of Troyes, and they they supported Charles the Seventh,、uh, the king's son, to become king. And also, it was complicated、uh, by the fact that Henry the Fifth's heir son was only a baby when he died. So the baby basically had, <laughs> according to the treaty, the baby was now king of both England and France, and France was not happy with this. And so Charles the Seventh, the Dauphin, he was actually living in exile in、uh, Chinon, and that is where he would meet Joan of Arc. And if we flash back to Joan. When she was at the age of thirteen, she started hearing voices, and she was a peasant girl from very humble, humble origins. I think she was illiterate, and she prided herself, I think, on being a good daughter and a good servant to God. And one day, she was working outside, and she started hearing people talking to her, and she was able to identify the voices as coming from. Saint Michael, Saint Margaret, and Saint Catherine. And we should note also that、um, I was reading about Joan in the context of France at this time. That French, the, France was Catholic, but they were very mystic believers in in France, and so they put a lot of stock into these visions and these divine signs. So obviously, Joan would buy into it very quickly,、yeah. and she took it to heart. Yeah, and. At first, I don't think the directions were too complicated coming from the voices. Things like be a good daughter, be obedient to your family, do a good job with your chores, <laughs> and those seem like you know good common sense things that most of us probably got from watching Sesame Street when we were younger. But then the voices became a little bit more, I guess, fervent, and the messages were much more poignant. They started telling her that she needed to cut her hair short and. Start wearing men's garb, and that eventually her calling was that she was going to get her own military troops, and she was going to help lead the French to victory over the English and put Charles the Seventh on his rightful place on the throne. And like Jane was saying, people in France bought into the idea of of mystical visions and dreams. And Joan's own father started having dreams around this time too that his daughter was going to run away. So he was ensuring that his sons were watching her to make sure she wasn't fleeing from home. But she did. Yeah, she thought she was hearing、uh, signs from God, and God tells you to leave. You know, you have you to leave. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> cut your hair and you get out of Dodge. Yeah. So she left to seek out Charles the Seventh. She arrived at his court, and after a couple days, she was granted permission to see him. But even then, when she was granted permission, she was there at the court, and Charles the Seventh、uh, decided to disguise himself. But interestingly, Joan recognized him immediately, which sort of lends the idea that she was sent from God. Right, and. I'm trying to put myself in Charles' place and really think about this. Here is a very young girl who is wearing men's clothes. She's got short hair. It's very unusual for the times that a cross-dressing girl would come to court and seek out rather forcefully the dauphin. It just seems a little bit、um, 
What's the word I'm looking for? A little, uh, bizarre. Pushy. Bizarre. You know, who does she think she is to find me? And so he really wanted to be able to trust her if she was who she said she was. And after she located him in a crowd full of people, had never seen him before, maybe never even seen a likeness of him or one of him at that age, she told him also a secret about himself that no one else would know. And, supposedly to this day, we still don't know what that secret is. Yeah, that's true. Although um, I read that historians speculate, at least, that the secret that that she said had to do with his uh, legitimacy. He suspected that he was an illegitimate child. And uh, and Joan sort of put an end to this to this question from divine uh, sources. Well, if that is, in fact, the secret that she told and she was able to put his mind at ease, then we can understand why he put full trust in her and gave her her own troops and made her captain in the French army. And she was sent to Orleans. And before he actually put her on the battlefield, he wanted to make sure that he wasn't aligning himself with some sort of sorceress. So he had her questioned by a panel of clergy. And they said she was legit. She's not a witch. She probably is hearing these voices from saints, and she is sent by God. Yeah, one curious thing that they, during this uh, Inquisition, well, this initial questioning of whether she was actually sent from God, was that they had uh, women actually physically examine her and see if she was a virgin, and they found that she was. And so that concluded to them that she couldn't have been in cohorts with the devil. So by this time, if you're not a huge fan of Joan, hold on, because there's more. And I'm a huge fan because I think it takes a a lot of bravery and guts to follow through on these voices that you're hearing and to put yourself through that kind of rigorous examination. I mean, you really are putting yourself on the line. And can you imagine what the men in the military must have thought when a 16-year-old girl was put in front of them and said that she was going to be their leader? Yeah, one story I read about that was that soldiers were convinced that she was sent from God because... At one point when she was wounded in battle, they saw part of her naked body and uh, they weren't taken by desire or anything. And they thought this was sort of God, you know, shielding them from sexual uh, advances on her. And that was a problem that would emerge later in her life. But as a soldier and as a captain, really, she proved that she was a very, very good good fighter. And she had this sword that was given to her and sort of an Arthur-like way, the voices told her that before she went into battle, there would be a sword for her hidden behind an altar of a church, Mm -hmm. and it would be covered in rust and carved with five different crosses. And they sent some people out to go fetch the sword, and sure enough, it was there, and she wiped off the rust, and she was ready for the battlefield. And With so, her miraculous sword. With her miraculous sword. Doesn't it sound very sore in the stone to you? Yeah, very. it's a very good comparison. So she's out on the battlefield, and she's got her, her white flag with the fleur-de-lis, and it started in May 1429, and it lasted nine days, and she won. It was pretty impressive, and so Charles, a few months later, was officially crowned the King of France, and what's interesting about this point is that Joan wanted to go on and liberate Paris at this point. You know, Charles has got his legitimacy, but there's still conflict going on, and uh, Paris was still controlled by other forces. Charles was actually against this. He wanted to stop the, the violence. He wanted to not push any further. So he opposed and delayed her her uh, traveling to France or traveling to Paris to um, liberate it. And historians speculate that Charles's um opposition actually crippled her chances ex- as success because when Joan did leave to go do this she failed. And a few months after that she actually tried again to liberate the city of Compiègne and it was there that she was captured in 1430. So when she was captured she wasn't 
a regular prisoner of war. She had actually made a couple of enemies along the way, one of whom was a somewhat powerful man, the Bishop of Beauvais, named Pierre Cochon. And he was determined that he was going to make this girl out to be the witch that he suspected she was. And he wanted her burned at the stake. He was tired of her. She was, you know, insubordinate. She was just causing a huge ruckus. And what's more, if she were convicted for heresy, it would totally discredit the fact that Charles was on the throne because Mm -hmm. he would have gotten there by some sort of means of black magic almost. So this was going to have resounding ripple effects if he could just prove that she was a witch. And what's interesting about this trial is that it was so hard to convict Joan of anything because she was so incredibly devoted to God and to the voices that she'd been hearing. And so any time they tried to catch her in a heretical statement or telling some sort of lie, it just kept reflecting back to the fact that she was she was a girl of God. She was following yeah. him and she was sent to earth to do his his divine deeds. Kushan knew what he was doing, trying to corner her into admitting heresies, but it's interesting that Joan was so she was, you know, unlearned, she was illiterate, and yet she was able to give very good answers. And a lot of historians chalk uh this trial up to being part of the Inquisition. And like we mentioned in, in the podcast about the Spanish Inquisition, that there were there were different factions of Inquisitions going around around Europe. And when Cochon wanted to bring in official inquisitors, they were really reluctant. The Grand Inquisitor of the Faith in Rome wasn't able to come. And so the bishop had to settle for a sub-inquisitor. And even even (laughs) him, he was reluctant because there's lots of irregularities going on in this case. You know, they didn't want to be involved. She Maybe she was illegitimate. We don't know. And so the sub-inquisitor only came after uh, Cochon, like, threatened him which is interesting. And he only showed up occasionally when he did like come to uh, England for the trial. So if Cochon hadn't already shown his true colors, he, he did a little bit later because he thought that there was a loophole in a law that he could get Joan through for cross-dressing. Of all things, here is a girl who has listened to divine voices and delivered France, and now she's going to be punished for wearing men's clothes, which was what the voices had commanded her to do. And furthermore, when you're on the battlefield surrounded by men, you've got to dress yourself in, in similar raiment. I mean, you're a soldier at that point. And we should know that there's two different types of churches that were recognized um, the church militant, which was the Catholic church on earth, that particular incarnation. And then there was the church triumph, which was God's heavenly church. And the one that Joan ascribed to above all else was the church triumph. But in order to be a, a true and devout Catholic, you would have to ascribe to both and follow the laws of both churches. Yeah, so this was how Koshan was able to sort of corner her into heresy, that she was she felt herself directly responsible to God himself rather than going through uh, the church on earth. And Koshan essentially asked, you know, you know that cross-dressing is a sin. And she tried to say, yes, I understand that, but it's a very small detail. Let's look at the big picture. But he eventually forced her into signing a decree that said she would not wear men's clothes anymore because it was a violation of the, the Catholic church on earth, the church militant. But then, when she was in prison, awaiting the rest of the investigation and the trial, some people later testified that all of her female clothes were stolen, and the only ones left were men's clothes, and she certainly wasn't going to go around 
nude because that would be, you know, very unsafe for her. She needed to protect herself. And yeah. so once she had on the men's clothes, mm-hmm. she'd broken the law. Yeah, I actually read there's there was one account, I think, that she was actually sexually assaulted in prison. And I think, obviously, even though she wasn't on the battlefield when she was on prison during her trial, etc., she would want to stay in men's clothes to protect herself from, from this kind of assault. And so while that may have worked in uh, fending off sexual advances, it certainly didn't work for Koshan. And that was it. Uh, she was set to be burned at the stake, only 19 years old, and she was burned alive. Yeah, and uh, a couple decades later, Charles VII actually initiated, uh, when he got like full power, he was secure in his power, he initiated uh, proceedings that the church could... Um, could liberate her or could uh, clear her name of uh, heresy. And they did just that. Um, I think it was just 24 years after she was burned at the stake that she was cleared, which is interesting. And it wasn't until the 20th century that she was canonized by the Catholic Church. And it's interesting. Some people say that that it took a long time. Some people say it's weird that she's a saint at all, because, you know, why would God choose a side in this hundred years war that had to do with uh, the legitimacy of the throne and everything like that and these between two christian co- uh, countries as well why would god take a side it's kind of clear that the church made her a saint partly to improve relations with the french government which is interesting and so today she's regarded as the patron saint of france she's also called the the maid of orleans <laughs> that's not really irish <laughs> the Maid of Orleans. They were French guys. Yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting about being burned at the stake, this is something that we have discussed before in our Medieval Torture podcast. I really, I oh, can't let it go. I can't this. let it go. When you're burned at the stake, you don't actually die from being burned. Just like if you were in a burning building, you die mm-hmm. from smoke inhalation first. And that's how Joan died, from smoke inhalation. And so they they ordered her body to be burned again. Hmm. And the after the second time, her organs were still somewhat intact. So she was ordered to be burned a third time to completely finish off her body. So she was burned at the stake three times. The first time killed her, but they wanted to, you know, get her all done for good measure. Mm-hmm. And then her ashes were meant to be scattered in a nearby river. But some people suspect that they weren't. And not too long ago, some ashes were found in a Parisian apothecary, and scientists started wondering, you know, just just wondering, could these be Joan of Arcs? And so in 2006, one French scientist was able to say that these ashes show evidence that they're from a young female body, and um, I think it shows evidence of, of bone and muscle tissue from a somewhat young adult girl. And we don't know definitively whether or not it's Joan of Arc, but you have to ask yourself how many women were really burned at the stake at France True, during yeah. this time. I doubt the records would show many, yeah. Exactly. And so they've sifted through these ashes, and they've also found what looks like a femur from a cat. Mm-hmm. And it would not be uncommon during medieval times for a cat to be thrown on a funeral pyre if a witch was being burned as sort of a, an appeasement to Satan. But the femur wasn't burned as badly as the other fragments of bone, so they think maybe the cat just went walking by afterward. Poor Bad cat. luck for the cat. <laughs> but there's also a very small fragment of cloth that could be linen or some sort of gown that one would have worn when one was being burned at the stake. So there's a, a lot of mysteries there. Whether or not it's Joan, we don't know. It's pretty incredible, though. It is. It is. Anyway, so a lot of interesting news about women in history and the grand sacrifices that they underwent for uh, trying to be a savior and having to dress like a man to do it and then getting, you know, kicked in the pants for that one. <laughs> so 
And speaking of relics, I actually recently wrote about the Shroud of Turin and uh, its fate during the Middle Ages. It was a really cool cool story. I wrote about it on the blog, which you can find at HowStuffWorks.com. Um, Stuff You Missed in History Class blog is uh, really cool. You should check it out. Candace and I write on it uh, each once a day. We do. And starting every Friday, we're going to be having conversations with you guys about our latest podcast. So be sure you check that out. And we also hope that you will look up this wonderful article called Why Was Cross-Dressing the Only Crime Joan of Arc Was Convicted Of on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>